Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Hey everyone, welcome to Canine Classroom. I'm Anthony DeMarinas. I'm here with my buddy Vinny Viola. And today our guests are Bobby Bambri and Dr. Kathy Murphy. Hey guys. Hey, great to be here. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So why don't you guys tell everyone who you are so that way they know and then we can start chatting. Okie dokie. Shall I go first, Bobby? Go for it. Okay. So I am Kathy Murphy. I'm a veterinary surgeon. As you may be able to guess from my accent, I am from the UK <laughs> and currently living in the UK. Um, and yeah, my veterinary interests are around the brain and how the brain works, how it processes pain, how it processes emotionality, cognition, etc. And to that end, I am also a neuroscientist. So I did my PhD at Oxford in cognitive neuroscience and then subsequently worked in academia for at least two decades um, in neuroscience. And now I'm currently working with Bobby in a company called Behaviour Vets where we look to bring, well, I look to bring all of my knowledge together and we as a pair look to bring all of our knowledge together and expertise together to kind of think about how we can support uh, dogs within our cultures and societies and also their owners, pet parents, guardians, whatever you wanna refer to them as um, in what they're dealing with um, in living with their dogs and in the human animal bond. Thanks, Kathy. And my name is Bobby Bambury. I'm a certified dog behavior consultant. Uh, I've been a trainer for two decades and I started in the shelter world. I really started to look at resilience um, without knowing what I was looking at as I was observing dogs and trying to figure out how to help them feel at ease while awaiting adoption and supporting that transition period when they're first adopted. And so from there, my career has grown. I'm currently uh, also at Behavior Vets, working as the Director of Education. So my focus is professional education. Uh, I do still work with clients quite a bit, and we get to put all of this work into practice um, and seeing its impact with our clients day to day and how it's been able, how we've been able to help people in a way that feels quite holistic when we're looking at um, supporting behavior cases, or even you know I have. I do dog sports, so I'm also looking at it in that realm. And then I have a puppy right now. So it's all about everything that we've been talking about or we're going to talk about in this podcast um, in all the different places when you're working with your dog. So you guys both have a, a newer uh, framework out there called Resilience Rainbow. So why don't you, one of you or both of you explain a little bit about that, like what it is and 
Um, and then one, and then maybe one of you could also kind of define what resilience is for, for us, like how you specifically look at resilience. So we understand and we're on the same page. Yeah. So I guess for me, the most straightforward way of looking at resilience is an individual's ability to cope with or recover from stressful events or situations or conditions um, or environments. Um, so it's not necessarily about avoiding stress or impact. It's about uh, building the individual's ability to be able to deal with that. So to be able to recover from it and to be able to not have it have a long lasting negative impact on their well-being or their welfare. Um, and the framework that we came up with was um, it was a long road. So through neuroscience, veterinary medicine, behavior consultancy, all those different kind of threads and bringing them together and looking at what we know within the scientific literature about resilience. So what do we know about resilience in the human domain where there is a huge amount of research on resilience? Um, and then what do we know about resilience in the animal world where there is less scientific research and where the scientific research tends to go down the route of um, acute stressors? So things that we would consider to be undesirably stressful. Um, but, and where can we see the crossover? So where can we see the crossover and where can we look for neurobiological mechanisms that help us pull from each of those disciplines and from those different data sets so that we could organize it under a framework that we could use to create training plans, to create um, different activity plans for different life stages for dogs um, and have them be completely individual to the dog's needs because what Bobby and I were both seeing I think is that there is no magic uh, kind of training method that is going to suit everyone and is going to you know cure all dogs fix all dogs whatever term <laughs> you want to use like that's not really what we're all about um, we all know from working with dogs that it's really about individualizing those activity plans and in the case of um, behavior consulting, um, dealing with unwanted behaviors or behaviors that aren't working for the individual or for the family that they're in. So we wanted to create a framework under which everyone could work, whether they're working with a healthy sports dog that has no problems at all, but the person wants to be able to have them reach their maximum potential versus somebody who's dealing with a behavior that really doesn't, I don't know, barking and lunging at people when they're out in the park or, um, you know, screaming the block of flats down when they leave during the day and have that generic framework support all of those different examples. And we were sure it could be done, but it took a lot of doing in that <laughs> we had to draw from all of those different disciplines and kind of sift out all the stuff that didn't apply to dogs and then um, really bring together the stuff that did apply to dogs. So that doesn't tell you what the framework is. Maybe I should hand over to Bobby so she can give you a bit more of what is the actual framework. I was going to say, so in English, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Stop talking. <laughs> add one thing before I get into the framework and um, there's you know we've looked at I know for years like like I said I've been in this for two decades 
for years, I've looked at, well, okay, that's in a stressful event out there in the world. What can I do to support my dog or my client's dog in this moment, right? And so it's a very much like, there's a function of the behavior going on. I need to address there is, you know, another dog that my dog is barking at. And I need to address that out there. But in addition to addressing that out there, there's what's going on in, like Kathy was saying, the neurobiological mechanisms. So we're looking at this from how can we support the dog's body in recover and mind in a way that is um, sub unconscious to it's like not a thoughtful process is what I'm trying to say where the dog's like oh I feel upset right now let me go do blah 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 um maybe eventually the dog can consciously make those choices and in the beginning it's about helping them neurobiologically recover or address whatever stress they're feeling in that moment so that over time it becomes something that they can just do automatically that they can just come back to their baseline their nervous system automatically so now we'll get into the framework do you want to do our call off that back and forth kathy oh (laughs) read off the seven domains of resilience we see them (laughs) yeah so the framework includes seven domains as we call it the resilience rainbow because we wanted to have a fun memory aid that is light um and hence the rainbow and but when we were looking through all the domains of resilience that we thought were really supportive and helping people see like how can I work with this dog how can I raise this puppy how can I support this dog when I go into a competition environment if I'm doing dog sports um so we found we discovered that oh there's seven like seven main domains so let's go off let's do it ready I'm going to start decompression is one Completing the stress cycle. Mental and physical well-being. Safety and security. Agency. And, oh gosh, now I'm getting hazy. Gets more difficult the longer we go down. (laughs) Good thing you don't have 10, that's all I could say. (laughs) I know, predictability. (laughs) And social support. Yeah. Yeah, So Predictability was the one you said, Kathy? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we've discovered with the work that we've been doing over the last like 10 years and more and honing in in the last year specifically is that everything we do can fit into one of those domains. Like every there's so many brilliant methodologies and techniques to work with dogs today. There's so many ways to address behavior. There's so many ways of like, things that you can do, like I do agility, like I said, like in the agility ring that can fall into one of those domains to support building resilience. And so it's really, really cool when you start to look at things in that way, because then you can see, you can think about like, if you're having a struggle and I'll point to, you know, I've had a couple of dogs over the years that have had struggles whether in the dog sport or just in life and like I said I'm I'm, I've raised two dogs well I'm raising a puppy and I've raised one puppy in within this this framework um and seeing their ability and two of them like I said are doing the youngest two agility so they're coming into I'm raising them to do an activity that I love that can be very stressful at times on the body and on the brain and not necessarily in a way that like, oh, there's all these scary things happening around me. No, it's actually like training can be stressful on the body, even if they love it, right? Because it's about the activation of the nervous system. 
you know, I've been working on a, the running dog walk with Funky for like over a year, year and a half. And we're, we're getting there. There's a lot more to do. And there's a lot more to like build in terms of his understanding. But getting it wrong at times and trying to figure out how to get it right is stressful. And that's okay. That's part of the learning process. You know, um, coming going into a competition ring, as much as he loves agility, that is a stressful experience. I can see everything in his body telling me that his arousal is spiking and he's so excited to be there. His pupils are dilated, but there are times that it's gone a little too far and now he can't perform certain behaviors. So how do I support you know, balancing all of that um, internally so it becomes sort of automatic in these, in these environments? And that's just one example of um, like sports. There's also like, you know, we do behavior work, right, Anthony? So, I'm, Vinny, I think you do some too, or is it all, only your focus is sports and competition? No, you do yeah, behavior work yeah. Too. I, I take pretty much any client. I work locally, so I get them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, there's all of that too, right? So, we have a client whose dog is, you know, maybe fearfully aggressive of people coming into the home. Like, what can we do other than addressing the trigger of, a guest coming in the house, like what can we do in that moment? What can we do before? What can we do after? What can we do throughout the week leading up to the point where we're having a friend visit the home? You know, so there's so many things that can support conditioning resilience as a way that we're calling it, like like working out in a gym, like conditioning and building muscle to then support the dog to have the ability to deal with those stressors in a more support in a more in a healthier way i'd say or maybe in a more constructive way or it doesn't feel as much of a trigger as it did maybe a month prior and it's not just about directly addressing the trigger it's like everything including that and can i just stop to clarify something because i know we've we've kind of moved on past the whole uh, like defining resilience are you guys including dogs that might be their difficulty that they need to overcome is maybe frustration versus I think a lot of times when we think of like stress especially now which is a good thing that it's talked about more but then now I feel like we've kind of swung all the way to the other direction where it's like every dog is looked at as like oh it's a fear response or it's oh it's so up it's so fearful Meanwhile, it's like I get there and it's like a wild dog at the end of the leash, like trying to rush people. Like, I'm like, whoa, yeah. that's not this dog that's is not frustrated, fear. wants to that <laughs> wants to go and do something. And then we're like, I don't want to I don't want to say like we're coddling it, but we're like treating that dog as this like scared, fearful, shut down dog that needs to be like, you know, here's some cookies and the dog's like foaming at and the mouth no at the end of the leash. So, so like, like and, and or, or maybe not, not such a dramatic example, maybe just like a Labrador that is just frantic and wants to chase and say hi to everyone, but then can't settle down. Like, are you guys including that or is it only dogs that are like fearful, scared, um, no. something like that? It's, it's all a lot of the work that we do as well is in dog sports and a lot of those dogs are frustrated right or they're mm -hmm. excited or mm -hmm. they're like the arousal is high because they really want to do the thing and they want to do the thing now or they want to do the thing but there's so many other things happening in the environment as well and so like how do they focus all of that onto the task at hand or like the examples that you gave absolutely so it's also this kind of over-the-top frustrated maybe upset, um, super excited, can't, you know, like their attention is everywhere, you know, to the shutdown dog. 
to the average dog who's like, you know, lounges on the couch and maybe we need to look at how to support that dog who's getting a bit older, right? Or like I said, puppies, it's it's everything. Go ahead, Kathy. I know you want to, you, you're yeah, very no, passionate about this. Well, I just got super excited because I feel like Vinny has kind of got right to the nub of it. It's a bit like acupuncture where you just poke a needle right into the middle of it. <laughs> um, because I really feel like this is all for Bobby and I around a conversation that is potentially controversial, but where I pick up on what Vinny says, which is, you know, I feel like our our Western cultures, uh, at least in the UK and the US, are have moved over the last 10 years towards mollycoddling. And I don't know the scientific term for that, but essentially has moved towards <laughs> the default position of assuming that we have to, you know, treat the individual as if they're anxious, fearful, as if they need so, um, support, as in, um, you know, I can't quite put my finger on it, but you, you've had me there, Vinny. And the problem with that approach is the problem with only ever seeing dogs through that lens is that we're not truly supporting them because a lot yeah. of dogs, do actually love living in our lifestyle they do actually love doing dog sports they do actually love going to the park but we're not setting them up for success because we're not doing the resilience conditioning exercises and we're not we're not actually structuring how we manage that transition from puppyhood into adolescence because we're still stuck in the old-fashioned idea that you know to bring up a puppy you have to take them out into the world and dump them in loads of situations with no tools whatsoever and say yay we've ticked off the list now they're socialized um whereas if we actually reframe all of that and say what what is it that we're trying to achieve during that key developmental stage for the brain what we're really trying to achieve is quality of interaction and building a really good relationship of trust where we can support the dog in exploring its own coping mechanisms and developing its own healthy coping mechanisms so that it can go into situations and it has a bunch of tools in its toolbox without us having to interfere with that. And that's where the neurobiology comes in. That's where it's really about, you know, practicing, practicing those interactions of recognizing healthy coping strategies and potentially right. reinforcing them. Like we can use intellectual dog training over the top of that. We can reinforce healthy coping strategies, but even just looking for them as the puppy is going through those developmental stages into adolescence and thinking, well, what skills does a dog sports dog need? Does it need the quickest, I don't know, the quickest sit, the most amazing ability to pay attention to me and to pay attention to obstacles at the same time? Probably not. What most dog sports dogs need and the really like successful dog sports dogs have is that ability to go into any situation and to deal with the unknown or the changing environment, which is by neuroscience definition, stress, even though it may not be associated with, I feel bad or I don't want to do this, but that changing environment or that unpredictability and say, yeah, bring it on. So what is the difference neurobiologically between those individuals that say, yeah, bring it on and those individuals that go, ah, I can't cope. And that might be shutting down, fearful, anxious, or it might be spiraling out of control or just being all over the place. Yeah, sorry, kind of went off at an excited tangent. Not sure. No, it's <laughs> no, totally. Was that was or not. 
that's that's totally what because some of the dogs that we've worked with are also operational dogs right Kathy like it's not even it's beyond sports and like so these dogs are bred to do a job or they're bred to you know save lives or they're bred to whatever and so this is applicable to those dogs as well that are bred to do something like a purpose out in our in our world um and so for those dogs because it's about preventing burnout and longevity and effective performance yeah and about getting the right balance of those things some dogs you know molly coddling is not always a bad thing i must find a scientific term for that but it's appropriate <laughs> it's a, when definitely it's applied a term. appropriately but you only have to look at the child psychology literature to see that this was the same mistake we made in child psychology we're kind of now shifting it more towards resilience building for kids and that's where a lot of the money is going into resilience research is in child psychology because we're realizing that actually all we did was make those children even more sensitive even more vulnerable and actually didn't build their ability to be able to deal with you know life and so you know because something that I think of is is sometimes when you do do that you can say not that dogs are kids and kids are dogs but the kid is actually stressed so an example that I would give people is if you brought your kid to a toy store every single day and you bought them a toy every single day and you did that for a month straight and then on day 32 you went to the toy store and you didn't buy them a toy like they're gonna be legitimately stressed right like mm-hmm. am i yeah. wrong i mean you're the neuroscientist oh, no, so I'm like yeah. like they're gonna have an actual stress response but like is it not somewhat fueled by the parents inability to show that i always tell the story my parents used to take me to toys r us every once in a while and they would intentionally walk me around and then not get me anything and leave and they told me you know like we wanted you to know that sometimes you go there you don't get anything right and and I that's think that resilience was actually, conditioning like, right yeah, it was resilience conditioning and you know in terms of like the dog in, in some of the trends that i see and again i feel like they're well-meaning and and at times they are the right thing to do but it's like this, like, you know, completely stress-free, never, n- never work on impulse control. Don't even train. Don't tell your dog to not ever do a thing, like just completely all across the board all the time. And then when the dog is having a situation where like you're saving their life, so you have to stop them. The dog has never even been, you know, has never even been grabbed by the leash and pulled out of the street before. And then yeah. now the dog is unable to deal with that because the situation yeah. is so stressful where you could have shown that dog pieces of that in a controlled setting where there was safety and there was like all those other things that you guys talk about. Like you trust me, you do have agency for, for the most part, you are in a comfortable location, you do have me here, I have treats on me, but I'm going to show you this little thing that might agitate you or frustrate you or even make you a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to te- I'm going to show you that you can get right through it and then maybe decompress you and chill you out and show you like, Oh, look, we're going to relax now, you know, but yeah. I feel like we're kind of losing that. And again, I feel like we're losing it in a way that's like, it's well-meaning. Like I understand why we've come that far. And I think it's because people were taking fearful shutdown dogs and dragging them through the street and saying, just deal with this. And this is kind of a response to that. But then now we almost, you know, we got to like swing it back a little bit. Yeah, a little bit more because it's not always the case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think in 
in the dog world right now, I think we've lost the ability to have discussions in the middle ground, which is the problem. It feels like, and probably only because of machine learning of social media, that we have this polarisation constantly and that try as we might, we're all kind of pushed um, by the forces of social media to try and fit into one of these boxes. But actually, the truth lies in the middle, you know, just yeah. exactly the examples you gave is people were dragging fearful anxious dogs through you know situations that were terrifying them and saying you've just got to deal with it and so the response to that is no we must never do that whereas the actual truth is well there is some middle ground sometimes and that example is terrible but there may be some examples where putting a little bit of pressure on and then having enough control to say I'm going to protect you I'm going to make sure you're safe and secure and there are boundaries to that pressure because I'm making yeah. a decision based on my knowledge of what you can cope with and how you're going to cope and making sure that you're safe and secure being able to do that is actually what does build resilience over time and there's there's a scientific term for that it's called stress inoculation um and it's a term that hasn't been popularized in the dog world. And I think it's partly because people are worried that it's going to be taken out of context and people are going to be saying, right, I'm going to take my puppy and I'm going to dunk it under the water for 10 seconds. That's going to be really <laughs> stressful and I'm going to pull it back out. It's like, you know, at some point- And we're point saying we don't do that. Stop. We're saying don't yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah, no, that is not a good thing to do. <laughs> That's part of the um, rainbow, right? You need water yeah. to get the rainbow. <laughs> dunking the puppy, right? <laughs> I, have a, I have a question regarding this. So um, especially with resilience conditioning, is part and and Bobby sort of touched on it before when she was talking about her dog and the dog walk and Vinny started touching on it a little bit and and so did you Kathy so um as far as like resilient resilience conditioning is part of that being able to learn through making mistakes because i think uh, kind of going off of like what Vinny was saying a little bit is sometimes i feel as though we can't um, point out or let the dog know when they've made a mistake, whether that's through training or you're in a situation that you're trying to address a certain behavior problem. And so I'm wondering what your guys take on that is both from like just your, your framework, if you feel that part of learning and part of building resilience is through learning through mistakes assuming and and when i say that i'm saying that i, I want to make sure i say that it's in a fair i'm talking about a fair way i'm not talking about uh learn through your mistakes in some horrible um you know way of some kind but but i'm just curious what your take on that is with regards to making mistakes, errors, things like that. Can I jump in, Kathy? Yeah. So I will say first off that we're actually going to address that in a bit of detail during the seminar. So I don't want to give it all the way here, whatever the expression looks like. But yes, there is neuroscience to support that making mistakes and trial and error learning is valuable and our job, and this is where Kathy's going to dive in a little deeper without giving away the whole farm, is uh, our job is to set up a training environment or set up a training um, session in such a way that, yes, the mistakes are minimal. And if it happens, you know how to address the situation so that the dog can move forward 
and learn from that and then adjust, right? So it's about splitting criteria in such a way that it is an effective learning process. And if mistakes happen, because they will, that's part of learning, um, you know what to do if that, if that same error continues. But there, it's so much, before I have Kathy jump in, it's so much bigger is what I've been learning since I started working more closely with Kathy than just looking at like, oh, you didn't put your foot in the, on the mat you know, when I'm teaching the running dog walk with Funky, like you didn't touch the mat on your way down in the yellow, like that's part of his behavior criteria. Um, and now I'm going to withhold reward, right? Because it's so much bigger because we have to look at, when this is again where the resilience rainbow framework comes in, all of the things that's happening in the brain and body that could be influencing that, what I'm, what I'm seeing as, oh, the dog made a mistake. Kathy, do you want to jump in? You know where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, no. And I think there's loads of directions that you can take that conversation, which is why we need a two-day seminar to go through this stuff. Um, but for me, yeah, the brain learns by working out what works and what doesn't work. So I think we've done, I my personal opinion is we've done the dog world a big disservice by focusing on reward and punishment as a binary learning model because actually the way the brain learns is what works what doesn't work and reward and punishment is one very powerful way or two depending on whether you think they're the flip side of the same coin or not uh, but it's a very powerful way for humans to change another being's behavior and that's why we've got obsessed with it but it's actually not the only way that the brain works. And it's almost, well, it's not even almost, it has been proven to be a way of hijacking the way that the brain learns because it is such a powerful model. So for me, I'd almost rewind that and say, mistakes are made up, right, by us, because the dog is doing behavior that either works or doesn't work for itself or works or doesn't work for us. And those two may be the same and those two may be very different. But the one bit that's absolutely key for resilience building, which I really think is um, a powerful thing to remember when we're training dogs, is that learning to problem solve as an individual is how you're going to work out what works and what doesn't work in the world and how you're going to practice your different coping strategies and be able to try things out and see what works most effectively, what feels most right. comfortable. Um, and I, I guess I worry sometimes in some environments that we don't allow our dogs enough exploration um, of what works and what doesn't work. And we don't allow our dogs enough ability to problem solve. Going back to your point, Vinny, about frustration, there has yeah. been a school of thought where we avoid all frustration and it's well-meaning. I totally understand it because we have had examples where people have been building in so much frustration that it, it's a negative impact on welfare. But actually learning to deal with frustration and exploring through the frustration, we all know as humans, is essential to our well-being and to our mental health and physical health. And yet sometimes we avoid that with our dogs for the right reasons, but actually then leave them with no ability once they're yeah. past that point of maximal 
neuroplasticity during adolescence and they've come out into adulthood and we're like hey now you can problem solve on your own because now I've got enough confidence that I can predict your behavior well it's kind of the wrong way around we sort of need to be allowing them to problem solve when we haven't worked out what their behavior patterns are yet where they're still finding out who they are because that is a really skill that speaks to agency and resilience and will eventually allow us to be making decisions and putting a little bit of pressure on them for the individual to be coming back and saying, that's fine. I, I'm happy. I'm totally cool with that. It feels good. You know, I'm not over outside of my coping abilities um, because I've got all of these different tools in my toolbox to be able to deal with stuff. And so one of the things we're going to do with the seminar is I have, uh, I'm going to use my puppy as an example of like, the sort of exploratory sessions where I'm getting to know how he learns, what he's doing, like what does decompression look like for him? What does engagement look like for him? Um, How does he respond if something is incorrect? How does he respond if something is correct? Uh, What does trial and error look like for him? What does learning look like for him? So there's just spending time doing these things with your puppy, for example, is one way to start to think about how you're going to create training plans and splitting criteria for that specific individual. And so when when you guys say exploring and and letting the dog figure out what works and what doesn't work, who uh, are you are you showing the dog that something doesn't work? And if so, how are you like give me an example of something like that? Uh, yeah. So- Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say there's out in the world, right? Like there's going out in the world and letting them like have experiences off leash or on a long line where they're figuring stuff out and problem solving. Like uh, Kathy pointed to her dog, her dog Zebedee. I love this example, Kathy, where he was in that two week scent workshop, right? Or scent camp or something. And you probably don't remember, but I remember. So the instructor is a really big instructor in the UK, a scent work instructor, and was super impressed with her German short-haired pointer on his problem-solving abilities. And he's a young dog. He's just under two, or is he two now? Just under he's, two, yeah. Yeah. Was really, and this was a couple months ago, super impressed with his problem-solving abilities as for such a young dog and his focus. And one of the things that I speculated with Kathy after the fact, and he was saying, and he knows like other dogs in the line, and he's worked with like so many, you know, GSPs over the years. And he was impressed with this particular dog. I'm just going to be honest. Kathy doesn't train this dog very much. <laughs> so yeah, so I know and- you're talking about, it's actually his operational. So he went uh, to Holland with my husband. Uh, he was one of two dogs that my husband took uh, for some training with an operational company and that operational company knows the line of German shorthead pointers really well. <gasps> Dogs out in the field that are working there. And yeah, he was very impressed with Zebedee. He would have bought him off me like that um, for his problem solving ability. And yeah, like Bobby was just about to go into a hardly ever train him. Right, but so why is he so good? So yeah, I've brought so him up under this framework of build resilience, build resilience, build the ability to be able to problem solve, to be able to um, to be able to work out what works and doesn't work in different situations, both physically in terms of where are your feet, because he's still adolescent, right? So he doesn't have a fully um, developed motor cortex or full control over his legs. 
So both in terms of physically able to have control or agency over what he can and can't do physically and also mentally. And um, yeah, it's really working because he's he's yeah, he's smashing it just under two uh, when compared to other dogs that are uh, of his same line um, doing the same sport. So, yeah, I think there's there's a there's a lot that goes into being successful in sport that is not about the actual mechanics so of that's the sport. sport. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, we know this from human athletes. This is not news. Like human athletes will tell you all day long that winning is, you know, up here. It's about your routine, your preparation, your, you know, your your diet, your thought process, um, all of those other things. And sure, you have to be able to jump or run or whatever it is. You've got to be good at that at the first part. But actually, whether you win and how you perform is so much more than that. So we do know this already. It's just applying the same uh, principles to our canine companions. And I want to give you a more specific example. That's all right. I wanted to give you a more specific example, Vinny, like, so that was one way, like out in the world, living with your dog and giving them opportunities to figure stuff out um, and then raising them. with. And I know Kathy wasn't very specific, but I'll give one specific example. So, you know, I do shaping sessions with my puppy. Like, I'm like, OK, I want you to foot target this random thing or I want you to nose target this random thing. Um, and so and we're going to do it here. We're going to do it there. We're going to do it. I'm, you know, with me in a chair, with me standing, with me sitting, you know, different things are going on around him and he's learning how to problem solve and he's turning four months this week, right? So this is stuff that I've been doing for the last month with him, which is like, let's just, and then let's figure out how to engage with this particular object. Um, And that's just one example. And then looking at my mechanics, looking at all the different ways to support him in learning how to do that and then building on that. And then again, I, I do a lot of, because I'm doing sports, I do a lot of like emotional regulation and arousal management while I'm also doing these shaping games. So that's really important because that's also teaching him how to problem solve in different states of arousal as well and how to start to bring himself down after going up or how to get him up and then come back down. So we're doing all of this work and that's part of the resilience conditioning um, while learning, while problem solving. And I guess like the arousal management is a good example because to start off with, I would start with Zebedee by being the one that is actively helping him to increase his arousal or actively helping him to decrease his arousal. But the the kind of control from his perspective comes from me backing off at some stage. And that's a judgment call, right? That comes yeah. from experience, observation, <clears throat> collection, like that, all of that information that says, I now think that it's the right time for me to step back now he's high as a kite and that he has the ability to bring himself back down again. Now I might make an error. It might be a prediction error and I've like got it completely wrong. Well, you yeah. know. So what this, you know, it happens. It's all data. I just, you know, make sure that I'm okay. made that mistake. Now, what do I need to put in place so that I don't I can make a more accurate prediction? But over time, you become so much more accurate about predicting how much frustration can he cope with? Does he have the coping skills to be able to bring his frustration level down or to be able to push through that frustration? If he's in the middle of a gaggle of dogs in the park, 
<laughs> does he have the right coping strategies to be able to get himself out of there or do I need to go in and get him out of there so it's constantly that conversation between me and my dog about you know am I predicting this correctly or incorrectly and sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong but hopefully I get it right more times than I get it wrong well, well yeah and I think it, it's almost to, to like your arousal stuff it, it's almost like you have to install almost brakes on your dog as if they were a car you know what I mean like and and going back to some of the stuff that I feel like we lose is you know this might be a controversial thing but like I teach my dog sometimes to wait at the door before I let them out right and it's not because I need to be the alpha and I need to show them that I walk out of the house first so that they're like subservient to me but I see it more of like if I can get my dog to wait as I open a door, that's going to like that skill can then lead to other skills, right? Like you see, you see people that struggle with their dog on leash walking, but like they can't even like get the dog in a leash and out of the house calmly. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Am I making sense? Uh, yeah, no, I totally know. Totally. And I so, think it so, goes back to like, are you? making your dog sit before you open the door because sitting before you open the door is the thing no you're not what you're doing yeah. is you're just using it as an opportunity to practice a skill that exactly. makes and it's and sense. it's just an opportunity that arises a lot like like I I'll work on that with a lot of clients because they're busy and you know what they do every day they walk out of their door <laughs> so it's there you know like could I teach them that skill using a cattle board or or some type of a, a toy down in their basement but then now they're like, oh, I got to go down in the basement. I got to work on this thing. Like you're, you're walking your dog out of the door anyway. So teach them to wait before you go out of the door, you know? But then I think it gets, you know, it gets kind of diluted and, and it gets, you know, mixed into that weird, oh, it's this alpha. Like you need to go out the door first thing. And then people throw the whole thing out. Oh, why are you waiting on impulse control of the door? Why are you making your dog wait before they eat? Or, you know what I mean? You know, yeah, and it kind of, and, and like, then you're throwing, you are throwing away a good opportunity to work on a skill that can help your dog. Absolutely. Or that could, or that could build into another skill later on, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's about spotting the opportunities, making it easy for clients because it's part of their normal routine and acknowledging okay, if this isn't working, I am not going to force your bum to the floor and choke you to make you sit at the door because sitting at the door is not the point. Like yeah, how exactly. success in that environment is not about whether the dog is sitting and waiting perfectly for the door. It's about more than that. It's about is the dog calm enough, relaxed enough, in control enough to be able to do that. So then you avoid if it's, if you know, if, it, if that conversation is had, then you avoid people thinking well I'm successful if I push the dog's bum down well no you're not because the point isn't that the dog's bum is on the floor the point is that the dog has control and makes that choice so if the dog isn't making that choice then that isn't success exactly it's like the emotional like where are they at emotionally yeah. and then you could yeah. also use it as a diagnostic tool like why like why is your dog so amped up just to walk out of the door you know what yeah, I mean? Right. And then from there, you could dive deep into that. Like, what's going on before this? What might you be doing that's amping this dog up? Or maybe there's something going, you know, then you find yeah. out that the dog actually is left alone all day, is not exercise and runs in circles from door to door when it hears the UPS man. You know what I mean? Right. Like, there's so right. many layers you can get to with something as simple as just like, can you get your dog to chill out at the door? Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant.
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you have something to say, Andrew. Anthony? Sorry, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, 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 had two, I had two questions earlier, and then everyone kept We're bouncing all over the place. And I kind of lost it. But one, um, <laughs> one of the questions I did have was, um, so in you, like, I want to understand, like, in using your framework, because I, I think, like, I want to understand maybe the process because like your your domains are like for someone who's doing this for a little bit like your domains all make sense because they're things that I think a lot of us all do already or think about already so I want to understand more I guess about like the use of the framework is it something where like you guys are listing all seven things out um, and then like oh let me you know like let me bullet point like what your what the main goals are for predictability, what the main goals look like for agency for this dog. Like I I I wanna understand, I guess, that a little more for for the professionals that are listening, like what they can maybe gain from from this concept that you guys have, that the way that you're looking at it. So certainly in the two-day seminar, we go into much more detail about the practical application. So um off the back of the neurobiology, the science, etc. Like you said, none of it really should occur to people as new because none of it is new. It's all stuff that we're doing every day, stuff that either we live every day for ourselves or for our dogs. But it's the practical application, like you said. So we will literally be looking at, okay, what does using this framework look like for puppies? And what does it look like for different types of puppies, different energy levels of puppies or puppies in different situations? What does this look like in adolescence? And how does that compare to puppyhood and where you're aiming for in adulthood? And how how do the priority domains shift depending on what the life stage is and depending on what the developmental stage of that particular individual is? And looking at it through, okay, when we have behavior problems, for want of a better word, so when we have behaviors that are occurring that don't work for either the family or the dog, what's going on there and how do we work out which domains we could be working in and what exercises we could be doing within that domain in order to support that individual? So which domains is it that are most likely to um, be relevant in terms of what exercises we're choosing to do when we're working with a dog for different behavioral abnormalities or in different situations. Um, and then looking along the continuum of all of that. So if we take the example of predictability, predictability is one of my favorites. We could probably do like a three week seminar on predictability. <laughs> But essentially, predictability is on a, long, a sliding scale of completely and utterly predictable, which is also boring, completely and utterly unpredictable, which is stressful. So somewhere along that continuum, you have a sliding scale where you need enough predictability about life to be able to make sure that you don't have anxiety about where is your food coming from? Am I going to stay warm enough? Am I safe? You know, those kind of things. But enough uh, change in the environment and enough novelty to keep our brain stimulated or in the case of a dog to keep a, bra a dog's brain stimulated and where the individual dog sits on that sliding scale of novelty versus predictability will vary depending on the life stage also vary depending on what's going on around the dog 
And then also vary depending on what's going on inside the dog. So, you know, disease and pain, for instance, impact whereabouts a dog sits on that sliding scale of its needs for novelty versus predictability. Um, so that's just one domain uh, where we can really explore in depth. What does that mean for different phenotypes, behavioral phenotypes of dogs? So what does that mean for different personalities, if you like, of dogs? And what does that mean when a dog's in its home environment versus the competition environment? And how does predictability change and how might we need to support the dog? Because we've now got more uncertainty, for instance, in the trial environment than we have at home. You're, uh, what, you're saying, oh, sorry. what you were saying sorry. just <laughs> reminds me of um of my dog journey actually because especially like with the pain aspect actually mm -hmm. i i have noticed because he has um he has a tethered cord syndrome so he's got an issue with his spinal cord and when as it's gotten worse his resiliency has also mm -hmm. uh, it's like, like, you know, I mean, when he used to, when he was doing agility and sheep herding at his best, like, I mean, a bomb could go off and he wouldn't care. He's been hit yeah. in the face before, you know, in sheep herding. Like, I mean, things have happened and it didn't phase him. Whereas mm -hmm. now that he's in a little more discomfort, He's not as agile as he was. He's a little slower. I have seen that his resiliency is not where it was. Like the last two agility trials, the first, our first run, he was like just way too distracted, which is not something that happens with him normally. And then his last, his last run on the second day, he just stopped in the middle yeah. of his run, he just couldn't do it. Um, yeah, and some of it was a mixture of discomfort for sure in in the last day. That, but you know, there was also just distraction in the environment, things that he normally wouldn't be phased by. And so, it, you know, I've noticed as he has kind of declined a little, so as so has the the resiliency aspect for him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like when you have conditions like that, that the resources that are needed for that resilience, because resilience isn't this kind of fluffy, you know, sit in a room and think about being resilient type of thing. It's neurobiology. So, you know, you can build it and you can reduce it, but it's all to do with the cells and the genetic expression um, and the, you know, neurotransmitters, the concentrations, the ratios of different neurotransmitters, etc. And also the receptors on the neurons, which shuttle. So you get an increase in certain types of receptors when you're resilience conditioning. And then when you have disease or pain, you get a decrease in those types of receptors. So you're getting a, a parallel decrease in resilience. And that's where I think the resilience conversation is really powerful, because, yes, undoubtedly, journey needs support physically with what's going on with, you know, managing pain, etc. But there's a well-being aspect where we can focus on supporting and maintaining resilience for journey that impacts positively on welfare and well-being that doesn't say, 
you know, we have to fix the pain in order to do that. We don't. It's a, it's a separate process that can also be beneficial. And the interesting thing about resilience and pain is that actually what's been found is that if we resilience condition in the, those individuals that are dealing with mm -hmm. chronic pain, for humans who can report their experience of chronic pain, their experience of both the intensity of the pain and the unpleasantness of the pain decreases, and that that is in parallel to changes in the way that their brain networks are communicating with each other. So those changes are brought about through a change in resilience, but it's changing their experience of their pain, even if nothing physically within their body is changing. So that's why in human chronic pain clinics, resilience yeah. conditioning is where it's at, because actually now they're realizing that these neurobiological changes associated with increasing resilience are changing the patient's experience of their pain such that they don't have to fix whatever is causing that chronic pain. Yeah. It's not um, that direct. You're not, it's not always, it's, it's not directly addressing the pain. It's like this yeah. indirect way of direct, of addressing the pain that what it is has doing, the experience improved. Yeah. And changing the way your brain is processing that pain. So that's where I think it's really interesting because usually we keep all of these conversations so separate. It's like dog training is separate to veterinary medicine is separate to, you know, neuroscience, whereas resilience shows us that actually they're all collapsed um which is what we intuitively know it's just that our society is set up to separate them and have us go to different specialists where resilience cuts across all of those so i want to um hear your guys take on uh more of a controversial su subject that i hear brought up and usually the people talking about it will say, you know, I don't know why it works, but I see it work or I'm not a neuroscientist, but I see that this makes a dog more resilient. Um, negative reinforcement. So so the removal of something that might be uncomfortable um, to reinforce the behavior. What is what is going on there in in your mind because because i'll admit I've, I've seen some cases and situations and videos myself where i'm like hmm. like it, it almost appears that it is doing that um yeah. but it's like that's not what i was told was supposed to be happening so i just want to hear from you know like a neuroscientist standpoint like is it something masked as something else or are there actually applications where um, maybe low levels of, I mean, we did kind of talk about low levels of stress. So technically we are using negative reinforcement, you know, negative reinforcement is kind of everywhere. Um, so like the That's thoughtful life. use of it, um, and harnessing it instead of just shunning it and pretending it doesn't matter. Um, you know, wh wh yeah. where are you on that? So it, we don't know what's going on in the brain of the individual unless we chop up their brain or stick electrodes in it. Which <laughs> yet. Um, but one day we'll invent a machine that will do that non-invasively. But essentially, for each individual, it will be different. So there, you kind of went into all of the conversations in that, yes, it may be working and it may be working without any negative impact on welfare or well-being if it's very carefully thought through by an individual who truly understands what's going on for that dog and truly is able to 
accurately link the dog's behavioral expression with its emotional state because with that remember, specific dog with that specific that dog. specific dog yeah for yeah. that specific dog so you can't have a trainer say that is a method I use because it works that makes no mm -hmm. sense immediately mm -hmm. I know that the trainer it's talking about it's a case by case basis with, it's with a specific. absolutely a case by case basis but i'm sorry kathy i'm interrupting again because it's also a context by context basis. yes yes so it isn't only for that dog it is absolutely within the context and the context could be physical environment it could be social context it could be internal context like you know how is my body feeling today you know all of those things um and there are different degrees, obviously, of negative reinforcement, which is the training conversation. And how do you mm -hmm, pick, mm -hmm. you know, what what is that tiny amount of challenge that is actually not going to negatively impact welfare and is ultimately going to build resilience? But it is theoretically possible. Absolutely. However, the problem comes when it's not carefully implemented and what mm -hmm. we may see is behavioral change that looks like success because we may see the behaviors that we want whatever that is either stopping doing whatever it was doing or doing something that it wasn't doing before and if we're only judging success based on behavioral expression that will look like success Whereas actually, if we want true success, we have to have that behavioral expression be associated with, I've chosen to do that. It hasn't had a negative impact on my welfare, maybe very slightly temporarily, but overall it's definitely had a positive impact on my welfare. Um, and I am not relying on tolerance for that stressor because a lot of dogs will rely on tolerance for that stressor and a little bit of tolerance training is okay and it kind of speaks to that's what we're doing with our dog sports all the time is kind of putting a little bit more pressure on and requiring right. a little more tolerance but tolerance can run out very quickly and if if we don't manage that we're actually doing the, the individual a disservice so being able to recognize when what we've just done is tolerance building and when it's resilience building and which one of those is appropriate for this individual in this context at this stage of its training is really key. And that's where the skill comes in. So, yes, so when some people say I use that method and it works for some people. That is true some of the time. But if someone tells you that it always works, then they they're not paying enough attention to the dogs because dogs are as individual as humans are. And, and then just... again, like you said, which is a good point, like contextually in the situation, like, you know, even with the same dog, you know, I noticed yeah. that with, with my own dog, um, obviously Malinois, I'm doing monitoring with him from day one as a puppy. I knew there was going to be a time where I was going to eventually tell him that I needed him to do something that he might not have wanted to do. You know, and I didn't want to wait until he was two years old, you know, and 90 pounds to then have that battle with him, you know, and I, I've used a ton of what would be considered negative reinforcement with him. Um, but in small doses, very carefully over a very, very long period of time. And, and a shift that I see when I'm using it with him is it's it's almost empowered like I see this change where he, once he realizes that he is in like his behaviors can control certain 
releases of pressure it's like empowering like it turns into something totally different and not in a way where it's like he's just escaping and avoiding because i know that that's that is where the lines get blurred and it could look like the dog is fast and flashy but really they're just like avoiding the they're just trying to avoid something you know and, and beat it no it's like more of this just like oh i know how to like i know how to get over this i know how to get over this and if you do it carefully i feel like it can it can empower dogs and to I want to give extent, a oh sorry I was going to oh, say and to was, what extent is it information versus a negative emotional experience yeah it turns more into yeah it turns more into information and then it's almost like you're conditioning pressure to be information and then and then in a situation where maybe the dog is would lunge or something back to predictability if you give them that predictable whether you want to call it pressure information, the dog's like, Oh, I know how to do this. I know how to, I felt this a hundred times before I know how to. So like an example, like I'm, I'm thinking of with my own personal dog is just leash pressure. Like I've taught leash pressure to mean tons of things and he's not reactive on the street because in the beginning, when he first started seeing someone, he would feel that leash and go, Oh, I know, I know what this means. I just got to turn around and come this way. Um, and and it wasn't. Yeah, the key you said was building it up slowly over time, knowing your dog, making a conscious decision about is this the right time to use this method, etc. And then contextually, if someone came running at me in a clown outfit and my dog started running away, I'm not going to grab the leash and be like, here's information towards the clown. Like, no, because now like what you were saying before (laughs) is is now this dog, even though this dog was carefully built up, now I need to be smart enough to know, look, this situation is too difficult for him if I do force this, then something might happen because, you know, it's Absolutely. not something he's prepared and it's always, for. It's always you looking at what's the potential cost and what are the potential risks and mm-hmm. understanding those risks. And that's my difficulty with going down the route of, is it okay to use these training methods? Well, it's, it's, you can never say, yes, it's okay. Cause it all depends on having that expertise and having that ability and knowing what is going to work for that individual dog and knowing what the risks are. And there are very clear risks with some training methods that are much more likely to go wrong than they ever are to go right. So it's about knowing what your own expertise is, knowing how appropriate it is and relating that to what is the goal and is my goal ethical? Like, do, is my goal just to win trophies for me and I actually don't give a shit about the dog I know no one's in that position as a black and white but that's like the extreme is yeah, you know, yeah. am I only in it for my trophies only in it for my results and I don't care about my dogs well clearly that's not ethical now I, don't, I haven't ever ever met anyone who's that extreme but we're all on the continuum of it so it's about having the ability to check how am I balancing what I want and what I see as success against actually ensuring that my dog has safety, security, agency, internal well-being, has agency to choose whether to interact in this sport with me or not. How am I judging whether the dog enjoys the sport or not? Mondioring is the perfect example because you see dogs doing mondioring well and they bloody love it. Yeah. But you also see some trainers training a lot of tolerance training when they're really, really young. And that is super stressful. And that is not the same as resilience. And those dogs will go out and win when they're young, but they won't. And then burn out. Yeah, they'll burn out somewhere along the line or they'll get an injury or something else. Oh, so So that's the other thing about burnout is that it might not show up mentally. It can show up in the body. 
right? That's what chronic stress does as well. And chronic stress, again, it's not necessarily evil, bad things are happening like clowns running at you that are really scary. It mm -hmm. can also just be, and the nervous system is activated and elevated over and over and over again. And then nothing is being done to support the body in bringing that ba back down to baseline or because of all that tolerance training and or all that tolerance training early on when they're young, their body is develops neurobiologically to remain elevated all the time. Um, and so that's another issue. I want to go back to what you were saying with negative reinforcement, because I want to give a practical application for people who are not necessarily doing sports, um, but also our practitioners, right? Like dog trainers, restrained recalls for puppies are a really mm -hmm. great example of negative reinforcement. And a lot of people do it in puppy classes. We do it in sports. I don't know if about like your average puppy class nowadays, but I know like a, a few bunch of years ago when I taught puppy classes, we did restrained recalls, but we set it up, you know, I'm doing them now with my puppy Drazen. Like we set it up in such a way that, um, you know, I'm passing him off to the instructor. I'm not leading out very far, right? He's all... And, you know, it's gotten, you know, after three or four of these passes off, right, he is now positioning his body so that she can hold him so that mm -hmm. he can now turn around and, play, you know, chase the mama with a tug toy, right? Mm -hmm. They do it in fly ball, they do it in agility, we do it in like all these kinds of dog sports. And I, I imagine, I mean, like fast cat is one example of a sport where you're holding the dog. And then they go, you let go of them. And then they chase the bag that's like flying down the line, right? So mm -hmm. it's all of that that's built into the sport. And it's done in a way that is gradual to support the dog enjoying the process. Now, if my dog, years ago, I had a fearful dog, right? If I passed her off to somebody, I have just now delivered her to like the devil as far as she was concerned, and um, now she's terrified and wants to get away, right? So like, that's not going to work in those situations. Now I've just completely flooded my dog. It's no longer negative reinforcement. And so it's an extremely punishing situation for her. Um, and so there's, it's so much more than just thinking about it in terms of negative reinforcement. And that's why I wanted to point to like, here's something practical that so many of us do with puppies all the time that is taking advantage of an amazing ability to build a behavior in a really fun way when you're observing the individual dog, looking at the context, all of these things. And again, I wouldn't pass my puppy off to some random dude that I'm like seeing on the street and like, we're going to play puppy restrained recalls, right? So it's like, I'm, you know, he spent some time getting to know my instructor. We played a little bit in the room. And then I'm like, okay, let's go play this game together. And that's also where context and the dog don't you touch that. That's my uh, my decoy outfit over there with my mama. <laughs> but we are talking like, about Monzio rings. So. <laughs> I think you just He's pulled like, the pants off the wall. Um, I think you yeah, just pulled, you pulled the, the pants off the wall. Well, they weren't on the wall. They were just like leaning on the wall. But like to what you said in a in a context is like, and, and that's actually a good one. I like that you brought it up because that's where a fearful dog can sometimes be misconstrued as like, oh, that's a good one, right? You pass a fearful dog off to someone and the dog just sits there frozen. 
And you're like, oh, look at that one. It's waiting perfectly, right? Like, yeah. like yeah. she's great. And it's really that the dog's sitting there like, oh my God, I don't know what to do right now. You're like, um, I'm then, gonna die. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna die. Like, I'm just gonna not move. Or or if you frustrate the dog too much, the dog is spinning and then maybe biting the person that's holding yep. the dog back. Yep. So like, there's yep. like both sides of that spectrum, like even within that, which again is diagnostic. Then it's like, oh, maybe I need to only take two or three steps away instead of run across the room with a with their favorite tug toy and start like squeaking it in the air. Um, so yeah, I like that you brought that up. That's a great, that's a great example. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a, a great conversation. Where can, where can everyone learn more about the two of you and also about the workshops that you guys are holding? I know today is what's today's date. It's April 24th, Monday, April 24th, 2023. So you have a workshop coming up next month, a month from now in May. In- yeah. Uh, New Jersey. Yeah. So yeah, tell us like where we can find all that info for workshop and about you two. Uh, yeah, so the information for the workshop, I think the link is going to be in the show notes, but you can also go to the Behaviour Vets website and look up the Resilience Tour. Um, we've got a number of different dates across the US and one in Canada, but yeah, you're right. In about a month's time, we'll be in New Jersey, which is super exciting. And you can find both of our bios on the Behaviour Vets website. You can find me on Barking Brains on Facebook. Uh, over to you, Bobby. Yeah, so on May 20th and 21st, we're going to be in Madison, New Jersey. And May 27th and 28th, we're going to be in Nova Scotia in Canada. On June 3rd and 4th, we're going to be in Denver, Colorado. And I believe it's June 9th and, um, yeah, June 9th and 10th, I think, is so the following weekend, Madison, Wisconsin. And then December 9th and 10th, we're going to be in Asheville, North Carolina. Cool. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Thanks for having us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.